The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. So we're coming down to this, a cliffhanger. They give it to Dennis Johnson. He'll spin the left side to the corner. Long jumper off the back of the rim. I fell the long rebound. Jumbles to Dandry. The Bucs are going to win for the first time in 36 years. Washington, D.C. has a major sports world champion. 43 years ago tonight, Washington won their last NBA title. 43 years it's been since June 7th, 1978, when the Bullets went to Seattle for a seventh and deciding game and beat the Supersonics 105-99. to That was the iconic call of that by Frank Herzog, who was the Washington Bullets radio play-by-play announcer uh, for many years leading up to that 1978 championship and was, of course, the Washington Redskins' longtime play-by-play announcer as well, and he had the pleasure of calling three Super Bowl wins uh, for Washington. Uh, but that was 43 years ago tonight, and I still can remember it. I, It was a seventh and deciding game. They had won game six in resounding fashion. They had won game six at the Capitol Center by 35 points over the Sonics to force a seventh and deciding game. One of the loudest arenas I've ever been in. The seventh and deciding game, their best player, Elvin Hayes, got in foul trouble, eventually fouled out. Um, you would have thought that you would you would have needed a big night from the Big E. He gave him 12 points uh, in just 30 minutes before fouling out. He was on the bench when it all ended. Um, but Unseld hit some big free throws. Bobby Dandridge, who was really the key um, acquisition going into that 78 year, uh, was a- exceptional. And they won the game um, 105 to 99. There was, by the way, at the end of the third quarter in that game, Charles Johnson, who was a reserve off the bench, CJ had a half-court shot. Actually, it was a little bit further than half-court at the end of the third quarter that went in. Only counted for two back then. It was not a three-pointer back then. Um, But it gave the Bullets a big lead, and they would hold on to that lead and win it 105-99 for their last title. 43 years ago. Wow. Uh, It's a long time ago. Uh, But I do remember it. And one day maybe it would be great if the Washington NBA team uh, could contend for a title again. Um, I'm going to start with some NBA today, uh, and I'll keep it short. I really will, I promise you. 
J.I. Hallsell is going to be my guest on the show today with the Julio Jones trade and a lot of stuff going on with respect to potential contract extensions with Washington. You know, I was thinking about Logan Thomas recently, John Allen. Um, there's just a lot going around uh, the league, a lot going on with the team. And J.I., who's a longtime NFL agent, a former salary cap expert uh, with the Skins back in the day, uh, he is going to join us um, for um, the second half of today's show. Uh, and we'll get a lot of football done with him. I wanted to start with the fact that the Atlanta Hawks led the Philadelphia 76ers yesterday in game one of their Eastern Conference semifinal game by as many as 26 points on the road with Joel Embiid playing and scoring 39 points in 38 minutes. When I said last week after the Wizards went out meekly against the 76ers not facing Joel Embiid in game five, I said that next day, I think to Tommy, Every single NBA playoff team not named Washington would have beaten the 76ers that night. Uh, That's what really disappointed me more than anything else is just how weak the effort was and really how much it really is the tell on the future. They don't have anywhere near a team capable of being a significant player in the Eastern Conference as currently constructed. Joel Embiid was not there for Game 5, and the the Wizards got blown out. Blown out. The Hawks went in there and had to face Embiid yesterday, and they were up at one point by 26 points and won the game. The second NBA playoff um, thing that I want to mention is what was my favorite part of the weekend. And I know not all of you care this much um, about the NBA playoffs, and I've had a couple of you say, my God, you really do. You're staying up and watching these games. It's great. It's not good. If you're a sports fan, if you're a basketball fan, it is phenomenal. The skill level, the games, the intensity, it's just completely different. I don't watch the NBA a lot during the regular season. I'm totally with you on the NBA as a regular season product. As a playoff product, it's phenomenal. By the way, the ratings are way up. Now they're up compared, compared to the bubble of last summer. But my favorite thing all weekend long was to watch the Los Angeles Clippers with Kawhi Leonard win two games against the Mavericks and advance to the second round. Kawhi Leonard is probably my favorite player in all of team sports right now and has been for several years. Some of you know that, by the way, I talk about him. I'm not going to put him ahead of any of the players on my favorite teams, But I love watching Kawhi Leonard play big games. He is a deliverer in the clutch like we don't see very often in sports. On Friday night with the Clippers down in that series, three games to two, Kawhi Leonard put on a performance for the ages. His team on the road, by the way, in front of a full house in Dallas, 18,000 plus, um, that te- they were down in that game multiple times. He put on a performance that was just incredible, start to finish. He went for 45 points and became just the fourth player in NBA history to score 45 or more, shooting 70% or higher 
when facing elimination. Wilt Chamberlain, who's on every one of these lists, LeBron James, Jamal Murray from the bubble last summer, and Kawhi Leonard are the only four players to ever do it. However, that would be to totally short shrift him on the overall performance he had because he was brilliant defensively. I think he is, and I think maybe we're starting to see the decline of LeBron James, but let's just consider LeBron to be where he is. I think Kawhi and LeBron are the best all-around two-way players in the game. I think when you I think Kawhi Leonard continues to be criminally, criminally under-talked about when it comes to his greatness. And that's because, you know, load management stuff, he's got a mercurial uh, sort of personality. You know, he hasn't always necessarily been that, you know, outward extrovert. He is very introverted. He's the anti-star, you know, compared to any other star athlete. He's a two-time NBA Finals MVP. Let's not forget that. It may have been on the way to a third had he not gotten hurt in the Western Conference Finals in Game 1 the first year that Golden State won their title. I don't think they beat the Spurs if Kawhi Leonard doesn't get hurt. Remember tripping on the foot of what's-his-name who was playing for the uh, Warriors who was on the bench at that time that knocked Leonard out of that series. Um, I think he's just such a great all-around player it's everything about him. It's he's, his ability to score whatever you need him to score, his ability to facilitate, but it's the fact that he also does it on the other end. And Friday night, Zach Lowe, you know, a longtime senior NBA writer for ESPN, said that's an all-time great two-way performance from Kawhi Leonard, and it was. His defense was exceptional, and then he went ahead and scored 45, including every big bucket at the end of the game to seal that game. And then he comes into Game 7 yesterday in a series, by the way, that that had not had one home team win. The game was in L.A., seventh and deciding game. Luka Doncic was incredible. He had 46. He is a – he's going to be – he already is a special player. Like, he has the ability over the next few years to become the best player in the game. Leonard yesterday, 28 points, 10 rebounds, 9 assists, 4 steals, 0 turnovers. He also checked Luka Doncic after Doncic went for 29 in the first half, and then it was primarily primarily Leonard's responsibility in the second half, and he shut him down. Um, He became just the second player since 1983 to go for 25, 10, and 5 in a game with zero turnovers in a seventh and deciding game. The only other player to do it was Kobe Bryant. He had over 200 points in the series and shot over 60% from the floor. Only three other players had ever done that in NBA history. Kareem, Shaq, two centers, by the way whose field goal percentages are always going to be higher, or at least they were. And then Bernard King did it as well in the first round in 1984. He's a special, special player. He's a clutch performer, always has been. He did not play well last year in the bubble for them in his first year with the Clippers. Personally, I think he was on two teams that were better coached than the team he was. he's on now. I think Pop, obviously, in San Antonio. Nick Nurse is a very good coach in Toronto. I think it's taken a while. They got Ty Lue this year. Um, you know, and I think Paul George, to be honest with you, is not a great compliment 
I think that he is the anti-Kawhi. I think he really um, shrinks a little bit in the big spot. Uh, but Leonard and the Clippers move on. They get Utah next. Personally, I think that they can win the title. But I think if they're going to lose, it's this upcoming series. There's a hedge. Um, I think the the Clippers could win the the whole thing, and I think we could have the third you know run for Kawhi Leonard uh, as an NBA Finals you know MVP and a and a big run through the postseason. Um, but I think this series is going to be their toughest against Utah coming up. If they get through that, I think they're in the NBA Finals, and then we'll see what happens with Brooklyn and the loss of Harden, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, one more thing about the NBA playoffs, and it's not about the games or um, any of that. It's about the broadcast team yesterday and something that Jeff Van Gundy said on the broadcast of the Clippers-Mavericks Game 7 yesterday as part of the ABC team with Mike Breen and with Mark Jackson. Um, I can't stand Jeff Van Gundy as a broadcaster. I've made that very clear over the years. I love Mike Breen. I think he's phenomenal. I think Jackson's okay. Um, Van Gundy spends 75% of every broadcast coming up with new rules for basketball, and I, I just can't take it anymore. It's been several years. He's annoying beyond description. Um, all he wants to do is talk about how you know, the rule that they have for this doesn't make any sense. And he's got a great, you know, way to solve the problem. And it's usually like some crazy thing that somebody like that doesn't know anything about the game would come up with uh, as a solution. He drives me crazy. Anyway, that's not why I brought up Jeff Van Gundy. Um, Jeff Van Gundy said something during the broadcast of this game that lit up Twitter for a few hours yesterday. He said with Luka Doncic at the free throw line, He said, in talking about Doncic's greatness, he said, don't let his whiteness take away from his quickness. And he was saying that um, because he was talking about the fact that, you know, Doncic isn't overly athletic, but at the same time has enough quicks and athleticism to be effective. By the way, as an aside, Doncic, to me, top three player, um, maybe currently in the league, top four or five player, definitely on his way to the top in the next few years. Um, That's how good he is. Um, Anyway, when he said it, I laughed like Mark Jackson did. And then I realized, uh uh-oh, he is going to get lit up on social media. And To my pleasant surprise, I thought it was pretty split, at least my observation of the reaction to these comments on Twitter. It did light up Twitter and perhaps Instagram and any other social media platform as well. Um, It seemed to be split. And my guess is this, and this is just, you know, my personal opinion. You may not uh, agree with it. I think that most people that have participated in sports been around sports, basketball in particular, knew exactly what he was saying and knew that it was not a racially insensitive remark. Um, And then I think there are a lot of people that don't really have the experience of, of having that kind of an exposure. And maybe they weren't even watching the game, but they saw it on Twitter and took it and ran with it and said, this guy's got to lose his job. Um, It was not offensive to me at all. Um, I, it reminded me of something, actually, and, and I told this story this morning on radio. It, it reminded me of a year ago 
when there was no sports, but there was a lot going on in the world. George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. We had a lot of conversations about this, specifically on radio. I took a lot of calls. Um, People thought I was nuts. We took a lot of calls during those few weeks. And I remember one call in particular um, that stood out, and it still stands out in my mind today because I don't think I've ever had anybody be so direct. And in all honesty, almost try to entrap me to a certain degree on the air. Um, the call went like this, you know, it was during one of those days in a year ago, you know, talking about what was going on in the world and, you know, the, the George Floyd, um, protests and the George Floyd murder and everything else. And the guy called in and he said, Kevin, will you answer these questions? Honestly? I said, sure. He said, are you a racist? And I said, no. And he said, okay. He said, do you see color? And I said, yes. And he starts to interrupt me and he said, well then, and I said, no, 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 stop, stop. Anybody that claims they are colorblind or don't see color, they're liars. They're being completely dishonest. We all see color. It's ridiculous to say, I don't notice somebody's color of skin. We all observe. We've all been in situations over our lifetimes. We observe people. And by the way, we observe differences based on religion or culture or color. The issue is it's not racist to see color. You're only a racist, in my opinion, If you treat somebody differently because of that color or religion or cultural difference. So anyway, he backed up right away. I remember that call specifically. Um, And, you know, we moved on. But yesterday when he said this, I I just thought, look, if you haven't been on a bass in a gym playing basketball, playing pickup basketball, or haven't played on teams, or haven't you know watched your son or daughter be involved in the sport, and you don't observe differences between black and white players, like you're lying to yourself. If you don't, but now I think personally, a lot of it are a lot of it is unnecessary stereotyping. I don't think it's ever insensitive, my personal view. Um, And I think that those of us that have been on a basketball court and played, and there's a lot of joking that goes around between black and white guys about white guys being not as athletic. This was not something that was racially motivated or racially tinted at all. Okay, this is something, and these are conversations that go on all the time. And uh, again, I personally didn't take it that way. And I think most people didn't. And I don't think Van Gundy's going to lose his job or have to apologize for it. I don't know. Maybe he's already done that at this point today. That's possible. But I think that the, um, the stereotype, this is the last thing I want to say about it. The stereotype itself, I think is actually a little bit overdone I think there are a lot of white dudes that are very athletic and they're sometimes the most athletic guys on the floor in a high school game, as an example, or a youth game, or even in a college game. And sometimes the best players on the floor are the least athletic and they're black. Like think about just, you know, um, 
who uh, one of my callers today brought up Paul Pierce and said Paul Pierce was basically you know Larry Bird. Like I think of like Demar Derozan. Look, Kawhi Leonard, who is my favorite player, is definitely athletic and he's long arm, big hands, and he's but he's he doesn't use his athleticism necessarily. He's not like explosively athletic, and that's the way he you know gets results. Um, he does it a lot with sort of guile and cleverness and craftiness. Anyway, dumb reaction from those that were calling for Van Gundy's job or calling him a racist yesterday. I can't stand him as a broadcaster. But anybody that's been on a basketball court understands what Van Gundy was saying, even if somebody like me thinks that the stereotype is a little bit overdone. Um what else did I have before J.I.? Uh, oh, uh, the John Rahm uh, withdrawal, forced withdrawal on Saturday from the memorial. For those of you that don't know the story, John Rahm was setting records through three rounds of the uh, memorial tournament, Jack's tournament in Dublin, Ohio, uh, at Muirfield Village. Uh, he shot 64 on Saturday. He had finished his second round early Saturday morning with an ace on 16. He had set the record for the lowest score through three rounds. He had a six-shot lead, but he was forced to withdraw because he tested positive for COVID. Now, the way this went down um, was as follows. He had been in the contact tracing um, protocol all week long. Uh, They gave him the option of bowing out of the tournament on Monday. Um, he had had exposure to somebody with COVID and he was in contact tracing, which meant he had to be tested every day. And if he tested positive, he was out regardless of where he was. Those are the rules in, uh, on the PGA tour right now. Now, part of the rules have been amended here recently with vaccinations to say that if you're fully vaccinated, even if you're, uh, even if you've been exposed to COVID, we're not going to test you. So you're good to go if you're fully vaccinated. The fact that he was in the contact tracing program and was being tested every day, even though the PGA did not reveal whether he had been fully vaccinated or not, the fact that they were testing him means that he was not fully vaccinated because they do not test fully vaccinated players. And the news came out, I think, afterwards that he had one of the two Pfizer or Moderna shots but hadn't gotten the second one yet. And so he's not fully vaccinated per uh, CDC guidelines or per the PGA rules until 14 days after the second shot with Moderna and Pfizer and 14 days after the first shot and the only shot with the Johnson & Johnson, the J&J shot. So obviously he wasn't fully vaccinated. Why he wasn't fully vaccinated, who knows? He's clearly not an anti-vaxxer because he's in the midst of, at least according to the reporting, of getting vaccinated. But he could have gotten vaccinated a while back. And not had this an issue. All of the players understand that if they haven't been fully vaccinated, there is a chance that they could be forced to withdraw from a tournament. It's already happened a few times on the PGA Tour. Um, But with vaccinations now, they don't even test if you've been fully vaccinated. Two of the players that were playing with him on Saturday, and we'll get to what happened when he came off the 18th green, Scotty Scheffler uh, and Patrick Cantlay, who ended up winning the tournament, Um, they both said that they've already tested positive previously for COVID-19. They feel like they they have the antibodies, but they didn't 
admit to whether or not they had been fully vaccinated. Now, I guess because they both played yesterday, that if they hadn't been vaccinated, then they were then in contact tracing because they had come in contact with somebody who was positive. That was John Rahm. They played with him on Saturday, and maybe they were tested and they tested negative, which was why they were able to play yesterday. Now, there are a couple of things. Number one, number one is this. If those are the rules, sorry, John Rahm knew what the rules were, and I'm not against them forcing him to withdraw. If the players have known all along, which they have, get fully vaccinated, and then we can't even test you. We're not even going to test you, even if you've been exposed to COVID-19. But if you don't get vaccinated and you are in the contact tracing, we're going to test you, and if you test positive, you're out. could be the U.S. Open. It could be the PGA. You're out. So Rom, by the way, did not protest um, much and had a very sort of um, conciliatory – statement that said, you know, uh, I'm, I'm asymptomatic. I'm glad that no one in my family or nobody near me is, is sick. Um, I'm sorry that this happened and yada, 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 whatever. Um, however, while I agree that, you know, per the rules, this should have been done and I don't have a problem with it being done. I think they need to look at changing the rules prior to next week's U.S. Open. Now, the USGA has the U.S. Open, not the PGA. But I think that there is a solution here that doesn't require um, or necessitate a forced withdrawal. These are outdoor events. We have learned in the last several months that transmissibility outdoors, the chances of it are slim and none. They are way down the list. We haven't known that all along during the pandemic, but if you're outside and golf is an outside sport, the chances of him as a positive test and transmitting it are so remote. So with that said, I think there's got to be, you know, um, a solution here whereby he can play his final round even after he's tested positive. First of all, a lot of people had this idea, and I agree with it. Why couldn't he have just gone out by himself yesterday morning, carried his own bag with a tour official, you know, just barely inside the ropes, socially distanced, keeping track of his round? Let him post the score, get the hell out of Dodge, and let everybody chase it the rest of the day. Now, somebody said, well, that's not competitively fair because he doesn't have the pressure of playing with other players in the crowd. Well, there have been a lot of instances over the last year of competitive disadvantage. I mean, we had baseball teams that didn't play a full schedule. We had you know, runners on, on second base to start extra inning games, seven-inning doubleheaders. We had lots of things that were going on that weren't competitively fair. The, the idea was to, to complete the games. You know, and make sure that the money doesn't go away, <laughs> that the revenue, the TV money wasn't going away. So I wouldn't have had a problem with that. Now, you know, the rules are what they were for the tournament this weekend, but they need to be updated. He was not a threat to spread COVID being outside playing golf. So that needs to be taken into consideration. The other part of this that I find they really screwed up is they got the results at 4.05 p.m., but they had to double-check, and they had confirmed his positive test at 6.05 p.m. while he was on the 18th and final hole. They let him finish the hole. 
They let him hug, you know, his competitors and slap five with guys and walk off the course. And then in front of all of the live, uh, in front of the live crowd and in front of a live television audience, two people from the tour, including the tour doctor, come up and tell him, you tested positive, you're out. He goes to both of his knees. You're watching this. You don't know what news they've just given him. Nance and Faldo, nobody on the CBS team knew that he was even in contact tracing. And so you're left to think, my God, what did they just tell him? I mean, you're thinking it's a, it's a family tragedy of some sort. And then Dottie Pepper, who's part of the broadcast team, quickly, you know, a few minutes later said, he tested positive, he's out, he's going to have to withdraw. And that was the news. They, If they weren't going to go grab him off 18, like in the middle of the fairway, which is probably what they should have done given their, you know, concern with their current procedures and not let him finish the round and expose himself in much close quarters with players and caddies and media people, et cetera, and potentially media people inside, although I think the inside facilities were closed off to him because of the contact tracing. Um, but if they were going to let him finish the, the, the hole, they should have walked him to an area where he was out of sight to tell him. I thought that was really clumsy on CB on, uh, on the PGA tours, uh, part anyway, <clears throat> that's it. Uh, when we come back, J.I. Halsell will be our guest. We'll talk about the Julio Jones trade. We'll talk about a lot of the Washington players that could be extended here. Brandon Sheriff, John Allen, Logan Thomas, um, I also am going to ask J.I. about how expensive it is to be able to keep the entire defensive front intact under contract over the next few years. That's next, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, let's welcome in to the show today, J.I. Halsell. And I've known J.I. for over 10 years now, I think. Um, J.I. Long time, man. It's been a long time. J.I. was a salary cap analyst with the Skins um, for several years, then became an agent. He's involved in a lot of different things. He's always been, for me over the years, the go-to on any salary cap-related um, questions that I've had. And so it's good to have J.I. on the podcast um, today because I, I was thinking about you 
with respect to the Julio Jones trade. Now, I have a lot of Washington football team questions for you as well. But I think, you know, when I saw the trade compensation yesterday, J.I., a second and a fourth, and then, you know, Atlanta also has to give up a sixth with Julio Jones to make that deal happen. It reminded me of something that I've always sort of felt as a fan, I think all of us as football fans, NFL fans, even a lot of us in the media, the thing we consistently get wrong more than anything else is trade compensation. You know, when yeah. we're talking about a player that may be tradable and we're trying to guess on what, you know, you'd have to give up to get a player or what you'd get back to trade a player, I feel like it's one of those conversations that we're always way off on. Do you agree with that? And if so, why do you think we're all so far off on on those conversations so often? Because I thought it seemed relatively cheap for Julio Jones, and I understand the contract that Tennessee's taking on, but still a player of his magnitude, a second and a fourth, it just didn't seem like enough to me. Uh, Well, I do agree that, you know, it's really hard as an outsider looking in to try to predict trade compensation. And the reason is it's it's more of an art than it is a science. I mean, when we look at free agency, that there's still an art to free agency as well, but there is a little bit of science and kind of connecting the dots when you look at free agency and trying to project what a player could get in the market as a free agent. It's not the same when we talk about trade compensation. Now, when we're talking about draft trade compensation, there's a little bit more of a science there because you can start doing the math on what would the rookie contracts be and is it kind of equal? So even that's more of a science. But when we're talking about veteran players, and to your point, a guy with Julio's resume, but who has been injured a lot over the past couple of seasons, coupled with um, the expensive contract, it becomes kind of more, you know, beauty in the eye of the beholder type deal. And if you look at some of the quotes from the Titans general manager, John Robinson, over the weekend, you know, he says that they've talked with Atlanta for the past two to three weeks over this. So it's, you know, it takes a while. There's not a lot of necessarily quantitative data that you can pinpoint to say that, okay, he's deserving of this compensation to acquire this player. So that's why we miss as outsiders looking in on what a player's trade value is. Yeah, but, you know, so I I understand that. And at the same time, sometimes deals that look, and and again, they probably just look differently to us on the outside because we don't have all of the information. But, like, I remember the Laramie Tunsil deal, and I understand that Bill right. O'Brien, you know, did that deal, right? And 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 sometimes the, the, the guy doing the dealing, you can't mm-hmm. comp to because he's such a moron, right? I mean, on some level, that's probably true. Am I right about that? Like, around the league, remember Absolutely. some of the dumb deals that Washington did over the years. Champ Bailey, Clinton Portis. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. Champ Bailey and a second for Clinton Portis when it should have been, you know, Champ Bailey for Clinton Portis a first and a second. You know, a, a, yeah. you know, and that's no disrespect to Clinton, but it was the position right. at the time. But um it, there is some of that, right? When you 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 don't want you can't get comp to a guy that that I mean, would Bill O'Brien and the Tunsil deal be an example of that? Yeah, again, and this goes back to being more of an art than a science. I right. mean, you got to factor into, you know, who are the, the, the players here? Not the actual players, but the GMs who are working with each other. What are the relationships? You know, what are the connections? 
Um, obviously, Arthur Smith, who I know actually when he was an intern in Washington, obviously being the head coach in Atlanta now, having that relationship with the Titans front office. Um, but, yeah, so you have to factor that in as well. So when you put all these things into that pot, it gives you a recipe that you don't know how it's going to turn out. Right. Yeah, I just like I just remember the Trent Williams situation. You know, Washington obviously failed on a couple of occasions to deal him, and that was a Bruce Allen not want to make a move. Don't you know, he he had his heels dug in, and he was not going to satisfy Trent by giving him a trade. By by doing that, he clearly passed on much better deals than the sure. deal they ultimately got. By the sure. way, during your time in the league and as an agent, um, are there any wild trade stories that you can think of? Like, like, were you with the organization <laughs> when Vinny wanted to offer Cincinnati the two firsts for Ocho Cinco? Yeah, that was I was just that was the one I was going to bring up actually because I had just joined the organization that off season, and like like we were a lot during my tenure there, we were up against the cap and. Um, you know, Eric Schaefer, who was the cap guy at the time, you know, basically tells me that, hey, we've got to try to crunch some numbers to try to figure it out because the owner is talking about, you know, trying to acquire Ocho Cinco and giving up these picks. But we've got to figure out how to make it work from a cap standpoint. And and to me, that's just one of those where, you know, don't get me wrong. It was Chad at the prime of his career, but the price to pay to acquire Chad in two first round picks didn't seem like, you know, who, here I am, the new guy on, you know, in the organization, but just didn't seem like the right thing. Um, but yeah, to me, in terms of deals that I've been personally involved in, that's the one that really stands out. And obviously we, we didn't pull the trigger. I'm getting sideways and off topic here a little bit, but you know, it's just reminding me of things like I, because you were in the organization um, at the time for some of that stuff. I mean, was there anybody in the organization at that time, Eric, you, anybody else that could say to Vinny or Dan, look, you may want Chad Johnson, but he's not worth two first-round choices. or You can't give up two first-rounders for him. Was it completely just in the moment, whatever the whim of the owner was? I know Vinny has told me before, and he's very, very careful not to be overly critical of that period of time um, publicly. But I know, you know, at that time, Dan was unhinged at times when it came to somebody that he thought, you know, he could market. Yeah, I think Eric tried to do his best to manage up um, without stepping on toes, without overstepping his role. Um, even Lewis Riddick was in the organization at sure. the time and – um, you know, so there were sensible minds in the organization, but you know, it's, it's a delicate, particularly in the, in that culture at particularly that particular time of the organization to try to manage up without potentially losing your job, right. right? Or finding, finding yourself in the bad graces of the owner. Um, so you had to kind of pick and choose your spot. So the, the, the long the, or the simple answer to your question is no, not really. There wasn't. There were people who had rational thoughts, but you had to pick and choose your spots when you articulated those thoughts. Were you there when they traded the second and the third for TJ Duckett late, late in camp or not? No, I wasn't there because I think that's like the 05 or 06. Yeah, it was 06. Seasons. Yeah, it was 06. Yeah. Okay. And so that, that was before I got there. But I mean, again, it goes back to our earlier question on 
why do these deals not always make sense as an outsider looking in? And you have to take into consideration who are the organizations who are who's leading these organizations, how rational, how strategic they are or not. And so you end up with some of these kind of crazy deals. So back to Julio Jones. Um, I know that there were there was fifty there were fifteen million reasons Atlanta wanted to move on from him. Um, yeah. Did they get enough? I think for me, that's actually the probably the thing that stands out to me most about this deal is that Atlanta was able to get Tennessee to take on the full fifteen million dollars uh, that is guaranteed for this season. Um, because we've even seen in other trades uh, this season, inclusive of Eric Flowers, where the team, the player's former team has agreed to take on some of that salary. And so when you talk about $15 million for, don't get me wrong, Julio is a first ballot Hall of Famer, but the guy has been injured a lot over the past couple of seasons. It's a pretty penny to take on that full amount if you're Tennessee. And so I think that factors into, you know, why uh, – why the, the the trade terms came to be what they were because that $15 million number was lurking out there. Was there a way, I know Atlanta was roughly 15 to 16 million over the cap and now they're sort of even. Was there a way for, for them? I really thought that the Falcons with Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley and um, Kyle Pitts now and Matt Ryan still playing high-level ball with Arthur Smith as the offensive coordinator, which everybody seems to love him as an offensive coordinator. Now he's the head coach. Georgetown prep guy. I know, Georgetown <laughs> prep guy. Um, I really – if I'm a Falcon fan, I'm pissed today. I either wanted Julio to stay to see what that would look like for a year because they could have been virtually unstoppable on offense – or I wanted a lot more back for him. I would have I rather disagree. seen them cut some people and restructure some people and keep them. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, I was say I don't disagree. Now, if it's seven on seven, that's a really, really good offense. I don't know about their offensive line. I don't know if they can keep Matt Ryan upright. That's a significant question mark. Yep. But and, and they, I can't name their tailback. But <laughs> yeah, you know it's um, true. It's it's actually going to be my uh, it, it's it's, the, be Mike, it's Davis, Mike Davis, but, the South Carolina yeah. back that's bounced around. I, I actually like yeah. Davis a lot. Go ahead. Yeah, and so you know, again, if it was seven on seven, it, that yeah, as a Falcons fan, who wouldn't want to see that? Um, and so now you're putting a lot of pressure on the on the young kid on Kyle Pitts to be just a different dude because Julio was a different guy. Like you know, he you got great receivers all all across the league, but Julio was different. And so you're hoping that Kyle Pitts can kind of be that at the tight end position now, now that Julio's gone. Yeah. Um, J.I. Halsell is joining us. So Andrew Brandt, you know Andrew. I've had him on the mm-hmm. podcast and on the radio show, a longtime NFL executive in the Packers organization. I saw something right before the show today. Um, he was re- he retweeted Jason Cole. Jason's been you know an NFL writer and reporter for a long period of time. Yeah. And Jason tweeted out something. He said Julio Jones demonstrated a vital part of how the player team dynamic works. If a player says he wants out, it will happen. It's been true since the days of Wilt Chamberlain. And Andrew Brandt retweeted that with the following comment, which I actually agree with, and I'm wondering if you do. Only if the team wants out, too. See Deshaun Watson, Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers, etc. The NFL is not the NBA. Do you agree with that or not? I do agree with Andrew in this regard. Um, You know, 
at the end of the day, and this is what I tell people all the time, you know, when they ask me, what's the difference between working on the club side versus working on the agent side? And the, the biggest difference, and it's not even close, is that when you work on the club side, you have all the leverage in the world. When you're on the agent side of the world, you're trying to scrap for every bit of leverage that you can come up with. And that's particularly particularly true in the NFL. I can't speak to the NBA or Major League Baseball, any of those, those sports. But, you know, to Andrew's point, yeah, at the end of the day, it's the club's, it's the club's choice. I mean, when we talk about Deshaun Watsons of the world and the Aaron Rodgers of the world, these are guys who play the most important position maybe in all of team sports and play it at a very, very high level and are struggling and trying to come up with every bit of leverage they can to get out um, of their current organizations. Um, so, yeah, I completely agree with Andrew, who, by the way, is a Bullis alum, I believe. And, oh, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, he's a local guy. And so I knew he was local. Um, I didn't realize he was Bullis. Yeah, and so, yeah, I, I completely agree with Andrew in this regard. I mean, at the end of the day, regardless of who you are with – maybe very few players in very few situations. Um, the club has to agree with the player that, yeah, we should part ways. Um, it's not as simple as the player saying, I want to be out regardless of what the organization believes and it coming to fruition. Well, I mean, look, I mean, the, I think one of the things sometimes that players don't understand is it's painful for teams to move on from them when they still have years left on the contract and they still haven't accounted for all of the signing bonus money. I mean, we know what the rules are. There are severe, uh, there, there, there's severe pain for, for teams to move on with players uh, like it will, would be with Houston to move on from Deshaun Watson. I mean, that's a whole different situation altogether. Um, you know, I remember some talk about Matt Ryan in the offseason, potentially if they were going to draft a quarterback at number four, maybe them trying to move on from Matt Ryan, but it would have been painful. There would have been a huge sort of acceleration of, of the cap that would have put them in an even deeper hole. So sometimes I think the players don't understand the, you know, that by by begging to move on, that it puts that it puts their employer into a pretty precarious situation and sometimes a very painful one that they can't endure. Yeah, that's actually the thing that strikes me about the Deshaun Watson situation is that not even a year after he signed his extension, he's basically saying he wants out. And no one forced Deshaun Watson to sign that extension, right? And so when you are on the cusp of doing an extension, you truly, as player and agent, need to really look into the future. Like, can I see myself here for the foreseeable future? Do I anticipate that the coaching staff could turn over? And in Houston, you had to have, that had to have at least crossed your mind that this turn, this coaching staff could turn over. And so a year from now, um, I could be with a completely different staff. Things could really go south, and that's how things have played out. And so do you really want to commit to that, or do you want to just take the money now, lock that in, and then we'll figure it out later, which I think that latter scenario is kind of what has happened in Houston with Deshaun Watson. Yeah, but it's one thing, and look, we, we haven't even uh, – the, right. the Watson situation's in flux for, for obvious reasons right for now. Anyway, obvious reasons all but, but prior to that, the conversation that I was having on, on the radio show and on the podcast was – you know, it wasn't even it wasn't even a year. It was four or five months. You know, he had signed that right. extension, and five months later, he wants out. Sorry, um, it's too painful for us to trade you now. You're gonna have to wait a couple of years. Yeah. You know, uh, before exactly. we can do that the way the way it works. And 
And um, anyway, uh, back to Aaron Rodgers for a moment. What do you think is going to happen there? I, I think money solves a lot of things. And, you know, he relative to his performance level and his resume, he is underpaid. I don't know, quite honestly, though, if he's even looking to, you know, get a pay raise uh, to stay there. It seems like there are some true fractures in that relationship that maybe money can't even solve because Aaron's a little bit of a different dude. Um, so to simply uh, answer your question, I, I, if I were betting, I think Aaron Rodgers is a Green Bay Packer this season. Now, how do they get there? I don't know. But it, it, there's truly – I don't know. I don't think they're firing the general manager. But they, they've got to find some way to make amends with their franchise quarterback Again, sometimes that requires money, but I think he'd be well worth it. Um, but again, going back to what we just talked about a couple of minutes ago, the organization has to be willing to move on too if he doesn't want to be there. And I don't see the Green Bay Packers moving on from Aaron Rodgers. I agree with you. That's my, I mean, and that's still the favorite, by the way. Um, and you can bet where Aaron Rodgers ends up. The favorite is still Green Bay. Denver is the second favorite. Um, you know, just as an aside, if he were made available, if I'm Washington, I go all in. Just like they were willing to do for the most part with Matt Stafford, I'd go all in. Uh, they, they'd be an instant contender overnight for the first time in 30 years, and I, and I would go for it. I'm curious about one thing related to Rodgers, and I don't know if that you'll have the answer, but I bet you do. Is there um, an option for him to retire, not play in 2021, come back and be able to play for somebody else that he chooses to play for? No, uh, they would simply put him on reserve retired, (laughs) the Green Bay Packers would, which allows them to retain his rights. um, And if he, and basically puts, hits pause on his contract. And yeah, if he wants to come back and play football, he has to do it for the Green Bay Packers. It's no different than way back when, when Deion Sanders retired uh, from Washington. Right. And they put him on reserve retired and, he had to kind of beg his way to get released from reserve retired and so on and so forth. <laughs> so, so yeah, so Green Bay would just put him on reserve retired to retain his rights. What if he were traded? Would it be, even at his age, you know, we've seen the speculation of what it would take, but again, this is the conversation we have where we yeah. just never seem to know. What do you think it would take to get him? If you were Washington, let's use Washington as an example. I think it takes multiple first round picks because as the Green Bay Packers, one, he's a Hall of Famer. Two, your trade partner is, you know, potentially desperate to acquire him to get them over the hump. And so you leverage that and you leverage it to um, you know, get multiple first round picks. And, you know, whether it's Washington or some organization who feels like they are a quarterback away from being a, a true being truly a contender. You know, it might be it might be worth it to you. Um, so, I, I think it takes multiple first round picks. I, I think I've heard, you know, when people were talking about Russell Wilson potentially being traded or Deshaun Watson, you know, two, three first round picks. It's going to take something like that for an Aaron Rodgers. You know, I think um, one of the interesting things about this offseason with Watson, Wilson, and Rodgers in particular, and then a lot of the quarterback conversation, the draft, and everything else, is I I think teams don't understand what it's like not to have one. Um, I think team fan bases don't, you know, there are fans in Green Bay that that are upset with Aaron Rodgers for wanting out. 
And I, I think when you've been in one of those cities, which is the majority, the significant majority of NFL cities that hasn't had one, hasn't had a true, you know, game-changing franchise elite quarterback, you forget what it's like not to have one. Now, if you're a Green Bay fan, it's been forever since you haven't had one because you went from Favre to Rodgers. Um, and it's amazing to me at the same time, The fans here in Washington, when we've posed the question about Aaron Rodgers or Deshaun Watson, how many people said, absolutely not, it's too expensive. I'm like, you're out of your your mind. Um, the three first rounders, you know, a sec, you know, two firsts, two seconds, and and Matt Ioannidis in a heartbeat. Like I wouldn't even think twice about it um, because you can't. You, it's been 30 years, and they would be an immediate top two to three favorite to get to the Super Bowl out of the NFC with Aaron Rodgers. Absolutely, yeah. Um, we, we we always kind of when we talk about quarter quarterback compensation and even the draft pick compensation to go get a quarterback. Yeah. It's, it's again, it's the hardest and probably most important position in all of team sports. It's hard to find the guy. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, it's going to cost a lot of draft picks. It's going to cost a lot of money. Now, Aaron Rodgers, his current contract, obviously he would want a new contract if he were to get traded somewhere, but over the next three seasons, he's supposed to make under 20, uh, under $25 million per year. Yeah. When, it's, you know, a bar- it's a bargain, making, relatively speaking. It's a bargain. Yeah. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. He, when he goes to an, if he were to go to a new team, he'd want a new contract. And I think that team would want to give him a new contract. Sure. But um, yeah, you know, in green, if he stays in Green Bay, from a Green Bay Packers standpoint, we've got a Hall of Fame quarterback for under $25 million per year moving forward. Um, that's another reason why the organization does not want to move on from him. You know, it allows them to build that roster around him. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's been a long time since Don Mikowski for the Green Bay Packers and <laughs> yeah, uh, Lynn you know, Dickey. Um, right, exactly. That, so that fan base, yeah, you get spoiled. Yeah, uh, Anthony Dillwig too. I will throw in uh, a Walt Whitman uh, graduate and Spurrier's <laughs> first college quarterback at Duke and a high school basketball teammate of mine um, way back uh, in go. the day. He played quarterback for one of those uh, pre-Brett Favre seasons uh, in Green Bay. All right. Uh, I've got three specific Washington football team questions for J.I. I'll get to those right after this word from a few of our sponsors. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. J.I. Halsell uh, joining us on the show today. Um, Gonzaga grad, uh, worked for the Skins, 
has been an NFL agent and has been one of my go-tos over the years for trade and salary cap and all that fun stuff. And he's always been a huge help. Um, all right. Uh, I had a conversation this morning with Ben Standig. Ben and I have had a lot of conversations. He comes on the podcast all the time. Anyway, he said something, and I didn't have time to go into it in great length, but he essentially said when the the topic of signing John Allen to a contract extension, which, by the way, I've heard that they are interested in doing um, and that John is interested in staying, he is entering, you know, his option year, and then he's right now an unrestricted free agent at the end of next year. And Ben made the point, he said, it's going to be very hard for Washington to keep this, you know, young star-laden, and it's becoming that, J.I., with Chase Young and Montez Sweat and Deron Payne and John Allen. It's going to be very hard to keep this front four together on this roster. It's going to be very expensive, and it's going to be hard for them to do. Do you agree with that or not? I do agree it's going to be challenging. It's going to require some creative thought around contract structuring and cap management. And I know, you know, the guy plays on the other side of the ball, but you've also got to figure out you're going to have to pay Terry McLaurin at some point pretty soon here too. Yep. So, again, you know, you don't have a franchise quarterback contract on the roster right now, so that does give you some flexibility. You've done fairly well drafting, but you're going to continue to have the draft well. You're going to have to have college free agents make the roster if you aspire to be able to keep that defensive line together. It's going to be a challenge. Obviously, you know, we've had a delay. We've had something happen because of the pandemic that we have not had in a long time. Um, And that is the salary cap not going up significantly, right? Um, And I think they put a ceiling on it for the 2022 season that it can't go up, you know, above, I think it's 210 million or something like that. Maybe you know specifically what it is. It's 208. 208, okay. From where it is now at 185? Correct. Okay. But after that, it's going to start going up significantly again with the new TV deals kicking in place, et cetera. I mean, a lot of what you know um, we're talking about will be contingent on how much the salary cap goes up and how much room each team has. And w- what we saw over the years is that you know they push some of these contracts, some of the expensive part of these contracts, into the future when they knew the cap would sort of catch up to it, right? Correct, and that's kind of what I was alluding to a couple of seconds ago when I mentioned it's going to require creative contract structure and creative cap management because, to your point, you do have to project that the cap is going to increase next season and then increase significantly in the off seasons thereafter. And so if you can delay some of that cap accounting of the deals, like, for example, when Landon Collins first signed his unrestricted free agent deal here a couple of years ago, his year one cap number on what was a deal that was, I think, like $14 million per year was like $3 million, and that was just due to contract structuring. You can do the same thing with some of these defensive linemen with a Terry McLaurin. Then you've got a chance at being able to retain all of them. But again, it's going to require that, that delaying of the cap accounting into future years, and it's going to also require you know, drafting well and getting uh, cheap labor effectively. Any chance Brandon Sheriff had that there's any incentive for him to sign a long-term deal by July 15th when he's playing this year for 18 million bucks? 
Yeah, so it's not by coincidence that I didn't mention him when I was talking about these long-term deals. Right. I don't I don't think that benefits Brandon Scherf to um, do a multi-year deal with Washington unless it's just a offer that he simply cannot refuse that makes him head and shoulders above um, the top of the guard market. Um you know, he, I think that Brandon Scherf, if he truly wanted to be here long term, he probably would have done a deal by now. Um, and he's, he's gotten paid, you know, a, a king's ransom over last season on the tag and this coming season on the tag. And next offseason, he'll go into free agency. He can decide if he wants to move on um, and, and play somewhere else, uh, depending upon how the Washington's season kind of plays out. Does he want to go somewhere else where he has a little bit better of a chance to win and maybe go get a championship? I think playing just under the tag and not doing a, a multi-year deal by July 15th gives Brandon Scherf everything that any player wants. A lot of money for one year's worth of work and flexibility going into next offseason to ch- uh, choose his own destiny. What do you think Logan Thomas is worth? Because he really performed last year. They don't have a lot of depth at that position or per, you know perceived uh, depth at that position. Um, and he is in the final year of a deal that they cut last year that was relatively cheap. Um, what do you think that they'd have to pay him to, to, to keep him around for the next few years? I don't think he, he doesn't get the 10 million per year. When you look at the top of the tight end market, you, you've got guys who got paid handsomely in free agency. Some of these guys most recently in free agency, you know, the, the John U. Smith, Hunter Henry's of the world got 12 and a half. Then the elite guys, Kelsey and Kittle, are at 14 and 15. He doesn't get to 10 million plus, but I do think that there's a sweet spot for Logan as a 30 year old tight end. Probably if Tyler Higby got 7.25, he's Logan's probably in that neighborhood. If he ended up kind of in that seven, eight and a half number, I think that's probably his sweet spot for a contract extension. Do you think it's worth Washington trying to do something now with the cap space that they have and getting something done now? Yeah, I think, you know, you want to reward Logan. Um, you know, he's a guy who you brought in last offseason for cheap, uh, played really well. My sense is he's a, he's, a, he's a good locker room guy, and it's not going to cost you a ton of money. Um, obviously, I know they drafted the tight end in the fourth round this year. Um, but you know what you're going to get out of Logan Thomas. And again, it's not going to cost you a ton of money. And back to John Allen. Um, I think that they are talking to him or are about to talk to him about an extension. Where does he fit in on the D tackle, you know, range? I mean, right now, Aaron Donald's the highest average per year, right? For the defensive tackles. Correct. So where, where would John, uh, where is he 20 plus million? See that's that's tough. You know the elite guys are at twenty plus. I'm Aaron saying Donald's where's Aaron? Twenty two and a half. Yeah, okay. Aaron Donald's twenty two and a half. I, I'm sorry, that's what I was yeah, asking. So and, where, and where Leonard John... Williams is twenty one. Yeah. You know. So where does John know. fit in? <laughs> I don't know that he's a twenty million per year guy. No. I think you know he's productive and he's everything you want as a player in the locker room. Um, but there's this gap between so Chris Jones, DeForest Buckner, Leonard Williams, Aaron Donald. All those guys are at twenty and above. Right. But then the next guy after below Chris Jones is Kenny Clark at 17 and a half. So there's this, you know, near this is two and a half million dollar gap uh, from number four to number five. Could you make the argument that Jonathan Allen maybe falls into that gap? I think that would be a good goal for Jonathan Allen. Um, you know, 
I think Kenny Clark is, you know, he's a solid player. He's good. He, it's 17 and a half for Kenny Clark. Uh, you know, maybe that, maybe that's the sweet spot for Jonathan Allen is to come in a little bit above Kenny Clark, but not quite get to Chris Jones's 20. Two more. Uh, first of all, in Chase Young, okay, you know, they have, they'll have that first round fifth year option opportunity when they get to that. I'm just curious as to how franchises and how you think Washington will approach Chase Young. If he turns in a second sophomore year here, a sophomore year that sh- that reflects what we started to see last year, one of the best players potentially in the game on defense. Like if he turns into a major league star, you know, edge pass rusher, game, you know, wrecking kind of a player. And we're talking about him at the end of this year as one of the top three or four defensive players in the game. When do you start thinking about giving him the big contract extension? He will have finished the second of a four-year deal, but the team's got the fifth-year option. How do you approach that if he ends up being what you thought he was going to be at number two overall and one of the best players in the game? Do you do it early? I do. I do it after year three. If he's everything on the field and everything off the field in the locker room that you, you could absolutely want. You do it after year three and you pay him $30 million plus per year. And you just, and, and then, and then, and then we're back to, can you afford pain, Allen and sweat and sweat might be as good. Can you imagine the potential, what they would, they could have invested, uh, you know, on defense in a few years with some of the players they have. Yeah. It would not surprise me if in next year's draft, they take, a defensive lineman, whether it's an interior or an edge early in the draft, um, because you have to do that succession planning because you're probably in all likelihood, not going to be able to afford a $30 million per year, chase young and a 25 million per year Montez sweat. So what you do is you go do some succession planning and go get yourself a young edge in the draft early in the draft next year. And maybe you, you end up trading Montez sweat and, Hopefully you build up some draft capital because again, you're going to need these picks down the road as you have to try to lock up some of these other guys. Right. Um, so you, you've got to get that succession planning and kind of going. All right. So after year three, you think is the sweet spot before the fourth year, which is essentially what they did with like Jordan Reed, if I recall. I mean, they didn't let it get to the point where he started to sniff free agency. Um, you know, it was it, apples to, to oranges because he wasn't necessarily the player, but it looked like for a while he had a chance to be one of the best players in the game. And I guess, you know, the, the bottom line is the closer a guy gets to unrestricted free agency, the less incentive he has to sign a long-term deal. Exactly. And we've learned that lesson here in Washington multiple times. Um, actually, I'm looking at the top of the edge market right now. It's what Cleveland did with Miles Garrett last offseason. Right? Right. They paid him after his third season because – after quarterbacks, the guys who chase after the quarterbacks are probably the second most important guys, you know, yeah. in football. So if you got a guy who is one of the best at doing that, you need to lock him up sooner rather than later. And it's going to be cheaper to do it after year three than it is going into year four, year four, after year five. Last question. We haven't seen much post-June 1 activity other than the Julio trade. Um and yeah, I was curious. You you brought up Landon Collins's name. Do, do you anticipate any surprise releases around the league or here? It would not surprise me if whether it's Landon or some other veterans around the league that 
they get um, released maybe, you know, as we kind of get to the end of the offseason program here. Um, it's unfortunate, though, because when you release a veteran player at this point in the offseason, all the money's been spent. All of the team needs have been addressed in the draft. So whether, you know, you can look, look at a guy like Morgan Moses right now trying to find a job, you know, at, at this phase of the offseason. Um, it, it's really tough for veteran guys. And the reason why you haven't seen a lot of activity is, one, teams have done a really good job of managing their cap and knowing the cap is going to go down. And you also have an opportunity to release guys with the post-June 1 designation earlier in the offseason, so before June 1st. Um, so June 1st isn't the big date that it used to be like 10 years ago. Um, but, yeah, it's that being said, it still would not surprise me if you saw some names, named veterans get released in the next week or so well i remember last year i mean they cut adrian peterson late you know and he was essentially all paid for at that point um i appreciate this as always it's good to catch up i know you're doing well out in arizona let's talk soon hey thanks as always man for having me on thank you to j.i Hallsell. i always enjoy catching up with j.i he's a good dude too um tommy's going to be with me tomorrow just a reminder If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, subscribe. Doesn't cost you a thing. Helps us. Rate us and review us, especially on Apple. Um, That will take all of 30 seconds of your time. Also, a reminder that MyBookie is a sponsor of this podcast. Go to MyBookie.ag, and if you use my promo code, KevinDC, they'll match your deposit halfway up to $1,000. Let them know that I sent you, and then you'll get that promotional rate where they match your first deposit all the way up to 1000 bucks. You can bet on anything. Um, they've got, obviously, a huge sports book with every sort of game and proposition opportunity available. They've got an online casino. They've got a race book, etc. MyBookie.ag, my promo code is KevinDC. Use it, and they'll match your deposit halfway up to $1,000. All right, that's it for today. Back tomorrow with Tommy.